0: Hello, I'm Garni Barkadarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting-edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today.
1: All right, I want to welcome everybody to the June edition of the CNS Journal podcast. Uh, today is going to be a little extra special. We're uh, covering topics related to pediatric neurosurgery. The uh, title of the article is going to be MRI/MRA uh, versus catheter angiography for annual follow-up of pediatric Moya patients, a cost-outcome analysis. And as a guest uh, speaker, we have uh, Edward Smith uh, from
2: Boston Children's. Can you give us a little introduction
1: of uh, yourself?
2: Sure, Uh, thank you very much for having me here today. My name's Ed Smith and I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon at Boston Children's Hospital. I've been here about uh, 20 years and uh, have a big interest in cerebrovascular disease and tumors and uh, it's a real pleasure to chat with everybody. Thank you.
1: And uh, as a guest interviewer, we have uh, Dr. Mahir from uh, Stanford. Uh, Can you introduce yourself?
0: Yeah, Yeah, thanks, Dr. Vega. My name's Cormac Marr. I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon at Stanford University. <laughs> uh, uh, just arrived here in January after a long tenure at the uh, University of Michigan. Uh, so I'm delighted to, to join you today.
1: Excellent. Uh, thank you for being here as well. And uh, as our uh, resident planner, uh, we have uh, Dr. Holst from the University of Michigan. Uh, you know, thank you for being here. Introduce yourself for everybody, too.
3: Absolutely. My name is Catherine Holst. I'm a PGY5 at the University of Michigan, and I have a strong interest in pediatric neurosurgery, and I'm very happy to be here today.
1: Good choice, you know, for your uh, guest today. So uh, that being said, I'll go ahead and hand it over to uh, Dr. Smith. Just give us a quick overview of the uh, paper. What was the interest uh, behind it and uh,
2: just a little additional uh, points uh, for the group? Sure. So uh, one of the big areas of uh, sort of clinical practice we have here at Boston Children's originally started by my mentor, uh, Mike Scott, who uh, Cormac also worked with many, many other folks as well, is the treatment of Moyamoya disease. And as many folks uh, know, this is a condition where there's progressive narrowing of the internal carotids leading to strokes and the prime treatment terrible revamp. In kids, we often do indirect bypasses, um, and there's some evidence to suggest that that's something that works well in the younger population. Uh, And one of the big questions up is, how do you follow these kids? And the two big things that we want to know, especially in kids, is, you know, number one are the graphs that we have uh, provided doing their job? Uh, And number two, um, are there other territories of the brain that can sometimes uh, develop disease later on? And we have many kids who have unilateral disease or uh, who have certain conditions where they're more prone to getting uh, arteriopathy in the posterior cerebral or anterior cerebral distributions that might need surgery in the future. Um, So that's the background. And historically, we've always followed these kids with catheter angiography. Um, And that works great, but as many folks know, there are some risks and there are some financial costs associated with that. and specifically with children, in particular, the kids often have to undergo general anesthesia, which is a risk. Um, they often have to, uh, you know, uh, have the risk of the radiation and the, um, the needle stick with the with the risk of the angiography itself. Um, and then for many families as well, separate from the procedural risks, um, there's the cost of doing the procedure, and there's the additional cost of travel because. While other imaging studies might be available locally, pediatric catheter angiography is a big deal to travel. So we had for years uh, started sort of in an ad hoc fashion for some kids um, looking at MRI as a means by which to detect um, how the surgery had worked Uh, postoperatively. We decided to formally look at this. And our question was, is MRI at least as good as the use of catheter angiography if we have select patients in follow-up of Moya-Moya because MRI has the advantages of less risk, uh, less anesthesia uh, and uh, procedural radiation risk, and potentially a lot of savings in costs. So that was why we did the study. And the the bullet point summary of what we found is that uh, for sort of routine Moya-Moya follow-up, Um, catheter angiography is probably not significantly better than MRI, uh, but MRI is about six and a half times cheaper uh, and also uh, allows people many times to get their studies locally, which is important because a lot of big centers, you know, at least with us as well, about 80% of the kids come from far away. So there's both uh, the procedural and safety issues that benefit this, and there's also the financial issues. Um, And so as a consequence, we've now started to use this in our practice, and uh, we thought we would share this information through our study.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that overview. And honestly, it was a very nice paper, you know, going through. it, I think it's a great idea. You know, I'll go ahead and open it up to our uh, uh, guest uh, interviewer. uh, So, Cormac, if you'd like to introduce or uh, any questions or anything you'd like to discuss.
0: Yeah, thanks uh, very much. So excellent work. And it's a really interesting paper, and I think it will make a difference for pediatric neurosurgeons around the country as they as they look at your results and and hopefully uh, learn from it and and become more um, more careful with ordering DSAs and in, in this post-operative population. But let me ask you, this was a, a nine year consecutive series. Um, and And in this population of eighty two patients, fifty three uh, patients had a DSA. Uh, twenty nine patients had an MRI. Uh, some patients, of course, getting both modalities. So, how did you decide which patients got which in this series? Was it just an uh, effect of time where you became more restrictive with the DSAs over time, or how was that decision made?
2: Right. So, that's a great ca- question, Cormac. And you'll see that, you know, the DSAs tended to be larger in number. And that was in part because before we formally did the study, and it is a retrospective study, um, we uh, originally did DSAs on everybody. So, we had a larger number. One thing that we started to realize in terms of the patient selection was that uh, you'll note in the paper here, we restrict the patient population to um, bilateral or bilaterally treated moya-moya. And that's important, I think, because we found that the unilateral cases tend to progress a little more quickly tend to have a greater question of needing the catheter angiography to distinguish disease progression. So a first important caveat is in terms of picking our patient population that you just asked about, we tried to to limit it to the bilateral folks for those reasons. Um, the second thing is that uh, as we were becoming more comfortable with this, two big things occurred that led us to sort of make the switch to this uh, patient selection. The first is that uh, our colleague, Darren Orbach, who's an interventional radiologist, uh, published a very nice paper a few years ago sort of transitioning from our standard way of looking at post-operative angiograms in indirect patients, where we've used this thing called the Matsushima grade, for those that do moi-moi, they know it, but for those that don't, it's a very sort of simplistic way of saying how much of the middle cerebral territory is filled up by your graft? Is it less than a third, between a third and two thirds, or greater than two thirds? And what we realized is that that's probably not a great way to assess graft function, because really what you want to know is how much of the brain is being protected, and that led to this what we call jigsaw pattern uh, of looking at the entire internal and external things together, and with that, we're able to show that MRI in that previous study did a really good job of identifying at-risk territories, both with MRA and also using axial flare. So with that, we then had a small period of time where we did both studies at the same patient in the same time. So we did the MRI and the angiogram, the catheter angiogram with the same patient at the same time to look at efficacy as sort of a pilot study. And we found that honestly, the MRI in these bilateral patients was just as good for all intents and purposes in identifying hypoperfused or at-risk territories or a new disease that needed more investigation. And that led us then to switch to doing a trial of just the, cat, just the MRI subsequently. So in terms of the evolution of how we pick these patients, uh, the background with Darren's paper was the background to that. And then our sort of logical progression to mostly doing catheter angiograms, then doing an overlap of both in the same groups of patients to see how efficacious it was as an internal control, and then finally looking at the um, uh, just MRI alone and then following them to see if in a small group the DSA was as good, better, or worse than the MRI group uh, after our low comparison cohort. So uh, that's how I'd answer that question as best I could. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So you had 13 patients with both modalities and then 29 patients MRI alone. So it's safe to assume the MRI alone patients are all in the most recent part of that that cohort.
2: Mostly. There were a few where we had patients that for various logistical reasons, they were uh, MRI only even prior to that overlap. So, you know, as I mentioned, about 80% of our patients are national or international. So they're outside of the New England area where we are up in Boston. And as a consequence, every now and then we would have a few patients that simply couldn't make it for a catheter angiogram because of their you know, where they lived or what was available. And uh, as such, there were a number that did have just MRI alone, even in the window of time. So it wasn't purely chronological, but it was largely chronological.
0: Right. So take us forward now uh, into your your practice at the the present state and in the future. If you write an article 10 years from now about your follow-up studies, how, how many patients are going to be getting DSAs in the future for bilateral disease?
2: Yeah, so uh, we have transitioned almost exclusively now for the bilateral patients with MRI, MRA alone. We do have certain caveats that we're learning about. So I would comment that um, the RNF 213 mutation patients, which are a very small subset here in the United States, but we do have a number of international patients and a few here in the US, they tend to have a, a much higher rate of other territory involvement, particularly the posterior cerebral. So about a, you know anywhere from 15 to 30% of them will have posterior cerebral disease. Those tend to be a cohort we're probably gonna end up doing more catheter angiograms on the, the, the DSAs simply because we know that their risk factors are greater. Um, on the other hand, I think increasingly we're learning, even though we excluded the unilateral patients early on, if the unilateral patients don't have other major risk factors, and, and in particular, We've identified the cohorts that have NF1, uh, neurofibromatosis type 1, which tend to be a little more indolent, and um, also some of the sickle cell patients uh, that seem to be a little bit better uh, cohorts to look at just with MRI alone. Um, So I think what we're going to see in the future is probably um, identifying subsets of patients not just on their angiographic criteria, but on their genetic profiling or their risk factors that tell us who are at risk and who aren't. So that's number one. And number two, um, we also just published a multicenter study looking at um, IV sign. So uh, on MRI, this axial flare, Uh, type of study that looks for slow flow. And we've been able to create a little grading system for that. And I I think to the second part of your question, we're going to increasingly be using that as an additional sort of radiographic biomarker to let us know who's at risk and who isn't. So our hope is that we will do fewer and fewer catheter angiograms going forward, but we'll be smarter about who gets them based on their um, genetic and their clinical backgrounds. So that's, that's what we're hoping.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. In your article, you had a um, subsequent revascularization rate of three and a half percent in one group and five percent in the other group, which of course was not statistically different. But can you share with the audience what your indications are for recommending revascularization for for patients? What are you looking for on the MRI? You mentioned the IV sign. Anything else that you think would be useful to know?
2: Yeah. So so revascularization, I I think is something that is becoming more and more apparent as we're getting more and more careful about follow-up in these kids. I, I, you know, I, I, I confess perhaps that we uh, are, are not as we weren't as good at it in the past as I hope we are now. Um, and there are several things we're realizing that uh, show these folks at risk. So for all comers, About 1 in 20 uh, kids will need some form of revascularization subsequently, although we definitely can stratify those into some higher risk groups and lower risk groups. Um, The most common things that we tend to identify, not in the unilateral patients, but in bilateral patients, which was this paper, Uh, Our posterior cerebral disease, which I think has been very, very under-recognized in the past. And we have a number of studies along with other groups to show that there's this progressive white matter change that's associated with neurocognitive deficits. And I think we've become a lot more aggressive about revascularizing the posterior circulation. So, So that's one big area we've become a lot more aggressive. The other is the anterior cerebral distribution. And, you know, in the past, uh, you know, Mike Scott, who I very much admire, and a number of other folks traditionally would would do uh, burr holes, um, which really didn't do a great job of revascularizing that territory. And again, these white matter changes that we're seeing on DTI, as well as the flare that I mentioned, uh, are showing us that perhaps we need to be a little more aggressive about Revascularizing the anterior cerebral territory that you might have left alone in the past. So, based on both the clinical progression, the neuropsych findings, and then FLAIR and DTI, on top of the standard angiogra- angiographic findings, um, those are the folks we tend to revascularize and those are the territories we tend to target. Um, I could bore you all day with the different subgroups and which ones get more of this or that, but I don't know that we have eight hours here on the podcast. Very
1: excellent overview, though, honestly, and I think that'll be beneficial. uh, Catherine, please, if you'd like to ask some questions, too.
3: Oh, great. And thanks so much, Dr. Smith. This was uh, an excellent paper. Um, We were actually just talking about Moya Moya at one of our um, education conferences this morning. So it's a great time for the podcast for us. But um, I was just wondering, in general, do you think there's any role for perfusion-based imaging in this population, such as MR perfusion or SPECT? I think yes. the, the Dymox days might be a little bit over perhaps, but.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very exciting time, I think, in the era of imaging and in biomarkers to be smarter about who are getting sort of categorized and cohorted, if that's a verb, I don't know if that's a verb, uh, for surgery. Um, and, you know, I, I would comment that, um We look a lot of times to the adult world for them to take the lead on a lot of these imaging studies because they can be a little more liberal in trying things in adults. One of the big challenges I think in kids is understanding that kids can't sit still as long as adults. Uh, Kids can't tolerate different studies as well as adults. And there's a lot of challenges with the physiology of blood flow in kids that maybe aren't as present in more stable adult kids. Um, We do uh, and have increasingly used uh, different things like arterial spin labeling, uh, MRI perfusion, and I I think uh, our group at least is still experimenting a little bit to sort of standardize these studies in a way that are meaningful and able to be um, uniformly performed at different places. Uh, So the short answer is yes, I think there is a role for that in the future. I think the challenge is making it the same at every institution with every scanner. One of the big advantages about IV sign and flare, as boring as some people think it is, is that it's pretty darn standard. Uh, and it's pretty easy in terms of having the kids just sit in a scanner for an additional literally couple of minutes. So that's the kind of thing, I think, for a pediatric cerebrovascular practice that is probably going to be as important as the validity of the data we get from the studies. I also think that there's going to be an increasing role for um, biomarkers, uh, and, and as as you may or may not know, I'm a, I'm a weird nerd that also looks at urine, which a lot of people laugh at, but Uh, We just had a national clinical trial looking at urinary biomarkers for brain tumors that went very well, and I'm hoping to replicate some of that with, um, we just published our work in Moya Moya, and I would love to be able to augment the imaging findings with essentially a uh, chemical fingerprint to say whether or not the brain is in need of revascularization, not to replace imaging, but as a complement to understand who might be a good candidate for revascularization surgery if you're on the fence. So those are some ways that we're trying to make it better in the future. I think there's a lot of good work to be done and we need smart young people to take the place of old geezers like me.
3: Well, thank you for that. Um, I also wanted to ask, in your paper, you point out that there's limited evidence in the literature about the timing and modality for post-operative imaging in this um, indirect revascularization population. Based on your experience, what would be best case scenario timing um, and modality protocol for pediatric patients with um, bilaterally treated Moya Moya?
2: Right, so when you say bilaterally treated, if you mean that the bilateral stuff was already treated and the question mm-hmm. is, when do you treat other territories? You know, uh, the simplistic answer is you wanna treat them before they have a stroke or any you know cognitive deficits but not before they need it. So you don't give surgery to people that are not in need of it, right? That's the simple answer. The hot answer is how the heck do you figure that out? And probably the best way to go about answering that question is not necessarily to look at these more complicated patients that have a lot of items in play, but to start your study with asymptomatic patients. And we've published in our group looking at asymptomatic patients uh, and what are the findings that suggest that an asymptomatic patient might be at risk of having a stroke, and whether or not they would be a benefit to surgery. And what we found essentially are three things. So on top of the standard, you know, obviously if you see progression of stenosis or perfusion on serial imaging, that's an easy answer, right? If they become symptomatic in that territory, if their blood vessel gets smaller, or if they have evidence of radiographic ischemia, that's an easy answer, you know to operate on those kids. If they're asymptomatic and you want to know if you should operate on them or not, there's probably three things. So our old tried and true tested standard is the development of IV sign. And I'm harping on this a little bit only because there's such extensive literature from our group and from others looking at this. And we've shown that if you did not have IV sign in a territory and then you develop IV sign in a territory, on average, it's about a year and a half to the onset of ischemic changes or stroke. So that is one very clear radiographic biomarker that is a trigger in asymptomatic patients to say, you know what, the brain is hungry and they're at risk for stroke. So those are folks that could be considered a candidate for surgery. So that's number one. Number two is um, DTI evidence of white matter change. And uh, Laura Lehman, who is a neurologist working with a number of other folks have done a study along with Sick Kids in Toronto, looking at this and uh, published and demonstrated that if you see these white matter changes, they are associated with cognitive deficits in kids, uh, but they uh, are reversible with surgical intervention. So that's the second one that we're now experimenting on now. And uh, uh, Dr. Lehman, I think is just, I think the papers in press now are about to be uh, submitted. So that's the second. And then the, you know, the holy grail in the future would be uh, essentially being able to identify markers of chronic ischemia, and we've published things looking at urinary VEGF, urinary matrix proteases, and urinary Netrin-1 as an additional tool to say, hey, is the brain hungry? And that's important, particularly in kids, because if you're doing an indirect bypass, it won't grow if you don't have a hungry brain. And so I really think that is an incumbent upon the surgeons to say, is the arteriopathy there? Can you see it on the imaging? And if the arteriopathy is there, is it functionally affecting the, the downstream brain? Is, there, is, there, is it hungry for tissue? And you're gonna find that by the MRI findings I mentioned, you know, including perfusion and all the other stuff. And, and then also potentially in the future with things like biomarkers for ischemic brain. So that's what we're using and that's what we hope to use down the road if that answers the question.
3: Uh, no, that's fantastic. Thank you. And I'll, I'll throw it back to Dr. Mark.
0: Yeah, thanks Catherine. And- and thanks, Ed. Um, you know, you had mentioned earlier some exceptions uh, to this uh, MR imaging protocol, unilateral disease being the big one. I wonder if you could share um, exactly when and how frequently you would uh, like to get a DSA in somebody with unilateral disease, say their status post a routine peels and angiosis with a contralateral normal hemisphere.
2: Yeah, so that's another great question one we get asked a lot, and I wish I had a crystal ball to be smarter about answering it. Um, you know, we we've published and others have on the rate of progression in unilateral disease, and the the board's answer, the short answer is basically for kids in the U.S. for all comers, if you have unilateral disease on one side, there's about a one in three chance of progression over a three to five year window on the opposite side. So if that's the story, you have a rough sense of how often it's going to happen and how frequently it happens. The question is, when do you intervene and do a DSA to really document that? What we found is that uh, if there's any um, abnormality of the arterial tree in the contralateral side, so for example, a hypoplastic A1, um, you know, duplicated uh, middle cerebral or, or something weird like that, those are triggers to get a DSA early, so uh, not just at the one year, but subsequently. And then, uh, if we see, as I mentioned, changes on serial imaging over time, right now our protocol is all the unilateral cases, assuming you know they they physically show up, we'll get a catheter angiogram at one year post-op. So we get an MRI at six months, and then an MRI and then a catheter angiogram at one year. If that is stable and matches with the MRI findings, we don't get any further catheter angiograms unless we see progressive change on MR. So it's a one and done unless we see changes. But we have a very low threshold to repeat imaging with a catheter angiogram if we see any of the things I mentioned on MRI. So that's at least our practice currently, and and I will comment that that is certainly something that is very actively in debate.
0: Okay, thanks, Ed. My final question, you know, obviously your practice is mostly indirect, mostly peels and angiosis. How do you think your results uh, would apply to a practice with a lot of direct bypasses, considering it's a different operation, but the same disease and you're screening for progression in in that same disease?
2: Yeah, so that that is a great question. And and you're really asking two different things with the follow-up imaging. I mean, one is With a direct bypass, you're probably a lot more interested in the patency and the flow of the direct bypass in a way that probably isn't quite as relevant for an indirect bypass. And so, you know, uh, this is something where the few indirects that we do, if if it's challenging, for example, the sickle cell kids or other folks, the Down syndrome kids who might not tolerate it as well, will get a a CTA, and that might be a way to sort of uh, thread the difference between the two. Um, But um, I would also comment that the older population that does get direct uh, bypasses more frequently are going to tolerate radiation better and may even tolerate an awake angio. So I I think there's a much lower threshold to do DSAs in adults. Uh, The question is, do you really need them to understand the pathology. And and I might argue that you can see the brain parenchyma and understand brain injury and perfusion probably better with an MR than you can with a DSA. So I would probably still suggest that an MR has a a strong role in the future, even in direct bypass.
0: Yeah, that's that's good. Well, congratulations again on an outstanding uh, article that I think will be really impactful. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I I have to second that. I mean, this was a very informative, very exciting. You know, I really enjoyed even, you know, as an adult, I guess, surgeon, if you will, like just the work on radio markers, urine markers, I didn't even think about that. It's very lovely. And so, anyways, uh, thank you for everybody to take the time out of their day. You know, I want to thank Dr. Smith, Dr. Mar, Dr. Holst uh, for taking the time to really uh, explore this topic, and I think the readers of benefit. And uh, in closing, uh, I also want to mention that the activity is uh, worth CME. It's complimentary to, uh, complimentary to all CNS members, worth 1.5 CME, and the podcast is available on the online catalog at the CNS.org. Uh, so we'll see you next month.